Hello and welcome to a new Corona Bonus episode of Dumped, once again coming to you in English. My name is Arden Kruger and today I have an exciting guest, friend, colleague and former lecturer and supervisor, Dr. Lisa Peschel. Welcome! Thank you very much, I'm glad to be here. It's so exciting to come over through Skype and that we can still connect regardless of being in different countries. I really hope to actually when I was last in London to make a pit stop to York to do this interview <laughs> with you in person, but it didn't fall into the plan, so we had to save it for now. <laughs> well, as a Corona bonus, I think <laughs> doing it this way is just fine. It's just fine. Keeping the social distance at the same time, mm -hmm. creating entertainment for the public. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, just a little bit about you. You are supervisor and lecturer at the University of York, where I studied mm -hmm. for three years doing my BA. Uh, tell me a little bit. Tell a little bit about yourself. Okay. Well, I'm originally from the U.S. I finished my PhD in 2009 on performance in one of the World War II Jewish ghettos, and you became involved in that research yes, project that's after why I... the period we're going to talk about today. Yes. Well, kind of during and a little bit after as well, um, okay. because that's why I had to bring in colleague as well, because we actually did work together on quite a few projects with the Performing the Jewish Archive Festival. Yes. yes spanning at least two years, I think. Yeah, yeah the whole, the entire project was 40 months, but yes, you were definitely involved for a large stretch of that. Yeah, because I remember doing the, the cabarets, that was the first things we did, uh, and then mm. some for the Holocaust Memorial Day, and then going on to do Harlequin in the Ghetto. And then we went to Birmingham at one point. <laughs> oh my, yes, for the conference. Okay, yeah, that was quite a quite a mosaic of activities. Was the first one, um, the one that we did that Karen directed you in short scenes, the yes. one that was at the Merchant Adventurers Guildhall. Yeah, was that the first one or was no, the Holocaust Memorial Day? I think the Merchant Adventurers Hall, wasn't that almost, almost in third year? Well, that was quite late, but we did the, okay. at the... Um, the tiny theater up uh, on the other side of the city. Uh, I don't remember, but it was a part. It was Karen who directed that one as well. Um, ah, you're right. I yes. don't remember the name of the theater, but yeah, it starts with an M, I believe. Morgate. Morgate <laughs> it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's not important, but I remembered that one first, and then we brought that with us to the Merchant Adventurers Hall at one mm. point. I don't know if it was the beginning of spring term, one point, or the autumn term at one point, and. Um, we also did it in a tiny, tiny, like medieval uh, pit somewhere in the middle of the city as well. At one point, I remember. So we did oh, we yeah. did a lot of things with these uh, songs and sketches from. What, tell mm -hmm. a little bit. What is the performing the Jewish archive? Uh, what was that? That was a grant project that was. It was a group, there was a group of seven of us who dreamed up the project because we were all working on the output of Jewish artists who were interrupted, mostly through World War II. Most of us were looking at the World War II era, but people were also looking at early phases, early and later phases of emigration. But it was all focused on what happens to artistic output in situations of forced emigration, in my case of incarceration in a concentration camp, um, with people who are dealing with extremely adverse circumstances ranging from again from 
you know, having to work in a new language in a strange country to actually being imprisoned. Yeah. And most of the other researchers in the project were musicologists, but a few of us were working on theater. And I was focusing specifically on the Tracing Chudak Ghetto, where there was an extraordinarily active theatrical life. So the projects you were involved in were mainly just bringing some of these texts back to life. Yeah. And that's what I really remember about it. And I, I love to tell the story to a lot of people and my friends who still don't know that the fact that the, there was a very vibrant cultural life in these places where we now consider just death and decay and incarceration, mm -hmm. um, especially like you said, with the Terezin or Terezinstadt uh, holding camp, uh, that was, I always remember the, the that you said it was a relatively... Uh, survivable in a way, like relatively, yeah. uh, but it's still is, uh... too many people cramped up and a lot of death and a lot of, but still they managed to have this amazing cultural, uh, theatrical and musical and artist artistry that came out of it. it I went and visited mm -hmm. the place as well um, and the, the museum with some of the art and the textures and just to see how they were living. And it's, it's, it's extraordinary mm -hmm. to see how art survives. <laughs> I'm so glad that you were able to actually go to the site because this is such an unusual story in the whole context of World War II because, as you said, the main function was as a holding camp or a transit camp. The purpose of Terezin wasn't as a place for people to be murdered. It was a place where they could be held before they could be sent on to the other camps and slave labor camps. So as you said, relatively, and I always have to emphasize relatively, yeah. the conditions were relatively better yeah. than in the other camps. People had the resources, they had the energy, they had just the sheer physical ability to get involved in the arts, including theater. Yeah, and I also remember because we did perform and we worked a lot with the, uh, the texts of, uh, well, survivors' uh, testimonies. Mm -hmm. And that's where you could kind of, that's where you really saw the emphasis on the relatively. <laughs> because yes. when you heard the stories and the testimonies they actually told of how it was to be there and live there, it is still an extreme environment that they, and immense pressure and uh, being completely watched all the time. And especially when we were working on like political satire in these texts um, mm -hmm. that were, supposedly censored but they still did it and they would change it in the last minute when the ss officer would come into the door it's such an amazing story and i really think that anyone who's listening to this podcast should definitely go and look at the ptga uh websites uh, where some of the videos yes. are re-performing as well is it are actually still there exactly. <laughs> yes yes we have a really good recording of harlequin in the ghetto yeah. both versions of Har harlequin in the ghetto yeah. actually all three versions of harlequin yeah. in the ghetto. <laughs> <laughs> loads of them all of them uh, and the smoke of home and all these kind of things. It was a great, great project um, to be a part of. And mm. at the same time, you were also my script writing teacher and political theater teacher or political theater, obviously, uh, considering with the projects and everything that you're working with, that's quite highly political. Um, but also you were my supervisor uh, for all three years. Um, being, yeah, my kind of representative uh, the one I would go to if I had something to talk about in terms of university 
I suppose. Yeah. This, this role of pastoral supervisor was new to me because I came to the University of York in 2011. Mm-hmm. And this role of pastoral supervisor is something that you know, most universities in the United States don't have. So the pastoral supervisor, as opposed to the academic supervisor, is really someone you can come to for a huge range of questions. I mean, obviously you can ask about academic matters there, mm-hmm. but it's also someone you can talk to about, are you having are you having personal problems? Mm-hmm. Is there something that's interfering with your studies that is just part of your life in general? Yeah. So that led into the conversations that we had. Yeah, well, I didn't actually honestly know about this whole pastoral supervisor part. Like for me, I was just, <laughs> <laughs> desperate looking for someone to talk to uh, that kind of had a, a different view than anyone else around or like I you kind of at one point you kind of get a bit fed up with friends and family and you're just kind of looking for new impulses to get and I didn't really know that this pastoral supervisor was a thing so I just mm-hmm. gambled and took a chance and because I'd worked a lot with you and I felt comfortable kind of talking to you and I just really didn't know where else to go um mm-hmm. so i think the the point of this corona bonus episode is to kind of talk a little bit about that dynamic between a teacher slash supervisor uh, and a student like how do you consider that position in terms of being a uni teacher and someone well first well first of all let's just do how did you feel when someone suddenly comes up to you and crying in your office and about <laughs> a breakup <laughs> Well, first of all, I can tell you, you are not the only one. No. <laughs> I mean, this is such an intense period of your life. I mean, the early 20s, Yeah. you go through so many experiences that are so formative for the rest of your life. And especially as a university student, you're in most cases, people are living on their own for the first time. They're having very intense relationships with their peers. Yeah. Um, falling in love perhaps for the first time, having an extremely painful breakup perhaps for the first time. But it's, it's, and I have to say it, it ties back to my research as well because the survivors that I was interviewing, they were in their 80s at the time of my interviews, which mm-hmm. were around the year 2005. Mm-hmm. They had been, most of them, in their early 20s in the ghetto. And just the the vividness of their memories of that period. And there's research that backs it up that your memories of this period will be some of the most intense memories that you store in your entire life. Yeah. So it's so interesting that you're looking back on this precise period, but from the perspective of only a couple of years. Yeah. Well, it's it's only a matter of four years, well, four and a half now. So it Mm. feels fresh, but it's kind of, I think I've also like like just subconsciously to try to forget a lot of it, <laughs> mm-hmm. which was really interesting when I then kind of found the text again. I was like, oh my God, I was crazy. I did right. this and that. Oh yeah, I remember sitting in your office. Oh God. <laughs> and like, obviously feeling very embarrassed about it, but at the same time feeling very comfort- comforted about it. <laughs> and I, I, I really remember that I once... I think I've been to your office a couple of times and I remember mm-hmm. sending you an email at like 10 in the afternoon, like at the, in the evening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you almost replying like 10 minutes later because I was just like emailing you and being like, can I just please talk to you tomorrow? Um, had like a proper downward period. And, mm-hmm. and you messaged me back like 10, 
10 minutes later being like, yes, of course, I'll, I'll have time at this hour. Now go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> and I just remember that. I was like, yeah, I will. <laughs> I was just like... Just... Getting some sleep is always a good thing in these situations. Yeah. But it's, it's such so imprinted in my mind, that one email. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't have my university email anymore, so I can't say like complete details, but it was so good. I might actually still have that. You email. might actually still have that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's quite... Mm-hmm. Huh? You know what? I can take a quick look right now. I, my username is aka521. Um, no, I'm not going to be able to find it. Ah, oh, that's right. <laughs> but but this, you, you bring up this, this pastoral supervisor relationship, though. It's interesting because it really does cross the boundaries of the usual student-teacher relationship. Yeah. Because part of the function is as a place where people can even you know, bring in issues of their personal lives. And it's it's an interesting in-between space because we're not trained counselors. And part of our function is to try to direct you toward help from people who are more trained in this, the Open Door Counseling Center or other counseling centers. But it is a kind of frontline position where sometimes you really get the intentional, the emotional intensity of somebody who's finally talking about this. Yeah outside of the circle of their peers for the first time yeah that's what i remember as very much and it's just yeah it's the new impulse of another person and just kind of seeking a yeah just yeah seeking another impulse i think that's the kind of the the word that i'm looking for but as you said like you don't have any how does it feel to kind of be in like a uh in this position as a counselor, kind of, but you don't have the <laughs> formal training of a counselor. Like, do you get any courses at all when you first start? Um, like, when you get the position in the UK, do you get any kind yeah. of coursing at all? We don't. There's there's training available now. Okay. At the time, that's something that's been instituted in recent years as. The situation with students and mental health gets more complicated. You can actually be trained. It's called a mental health first aider. Right. And you get some just very basic training about how to deal with somebody who's in a lot of emotional distress. Mm-hmm. But that's, yeah, I hadn't had, <laughs> I hadn't had that at the time. When just we have the experience. <laughs> well, it just, it becomes, a, it becomes a question of how do you draw on your own powers of empathy and your own experience to try to give the person in distress some comfort, maybe some advice, but above all to do no harm, just keeping very aware of the fact that, you know, I'm not a trained counselor. You should definitely be talking to someone who is better equipped. But at the same time, because we knew each other personally, it's, it's a different kind of experience. Mm -hmm. And, I hope that you'll, re- because you have the documents, you have the records of how this all played out on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. Would you remind me, just just remind me more about how that meeting played out? I, I don't have much records of the actual meeting itself. Mm-hmm. I've just, like, the only things I've actually found is that I remember being, like, I wrote just that I've been seeing you and that it was really, really nice. Oh, <laughs> I good. Think, I think, okay. like, this play that I'm writing at the moment about this story. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, I did put in, yeah, I just said I had a very nice conversation with my supervisor at the university and it's the first time I've talked to some, a a current teacher about heartache. 
Uh, yeah (laughs) she concluded that it was better to delete him from snapchat and just give myself a break from this shit i agree but a part of me wants to wait a little bit longer because it's so nice now (laughs) i've concluded that if it's going to happen i'm going to call him and tell him how it is (laughs) yeah that's what i I do do you remember that i do remember that aspect of the conversation because I mean, again, since we don't have training in counseling, I think most of us just, we draw, and again, we draw on our own powers of empathy, but we also draw on our experience. Yeah. And I was sitting there, I mean, I do vividly remember how upset you were. And when you see somebody in that kind of distress, of course, it calls up previous instances in your own life where you've been struggling with something similar. Yeah. And I just, I just remembered the only thing, one of the most difficult breakups that I went through in my life, the only thing that finally helped was be being able to get some distance from it by just stopping the communication yeah. for a while, which is where that bit of advice came from. Yeah. It's such it's such a difficult thing to do. Yeah. And it doesn't always help. No. Uh, but it, it, it like in the end that's what helped me as well. After like five months, it is the one thing that actually helped me in the end mm-hmm. was to just delete him. Like I should have taken your advice at that point, straight up. Uh, mm-hmm. I was a fool to not take your advice, but you are in a m- emotional turmoil all the time. Um, yeah. But it was- never. Yeah, <laughs> well, it did, I did eventually. <laughs> and that's kind of what like me stopping writing and deleting him from social media is what eventually led me to kind of process it in a lot better way and kind of get over it uh, in the okay. end. So you did give me good advice. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious why, about the advice to stop writing about it, did your counselor feel like you were just reinscribing the story rather than processing Pretty it? Pretty much. I kept kind of not allowing me to move on in the way because mm-hmm. I would continuously kind of dissect and develop or like not really develop, but kind of stagnating myself into the story all the time. Like, I wouldn't mm-hmm. allow myself just to feel shit. I had to understand why I felt shit and try to look at all these reasons. But then that just made me feel more shit because I was just, I'm not being able to let go of emotions and memories. I was still clinging on to them by yes. writing about them all the time. Um, okay. So it was more, it became for me at one point an obsession rather than something, mm-hmm. because I know it to be quite therapeutic for a lot of people um this whole idea of writing and kind of getting your emotions out but I kind of went to the other extreme where I couldn't let go of my emotions because I was holding on to them through the writing I was doing Mm -hmm. so tell me if we might have even talked about this the Freudian definition of melancholy I don't think we have Take a look at that because it might be interesting in your future podcasts because it's about this very process when instead of working through an an emotionally painful experience, you incorporate it into your identity. It's a psychological process where you do, you absorb this problem into yourself to such an extent that it becomes linked with your identity in a way that then you can't base your identity on something more productive. It all becomes about... I think this suffering. Yeah, I think definitely I was kind of in that pit <laughs> to say like everything because my whole world felt embellished or like enveloped in this sadness and yeah. kind of despair that I was feeling at, at the time. 
Well, and, and that's part of the mourning process, but that is. is melancholy is when the mourning process yeah. goes on and on and on yeah. and begins to kind of take on a life of its own. Yeah, but that's also what's helped me later to kind of accept melancholy and sadness in a whole different way, I feel, because mm -hmm. now me stopping writing and then kind of just be forcing myself to uh, experience emotions in itself without kind of trying mm -hmm. to explain it, without trying to... Um, yes. understand it just kind of ex exploring that emotion in itself is essentially what later helped me to kind of now when I feel sad I can kind of appreciate the sadness or the melancholy if I ever feel melancholic I enjoy the emotions in a whole different way which sounds quite sadistic in terms of melancholy and sadness but mm. it's still kind of and I think that's also what so maybe helped me a little bit as an actor later as well because it just allowed me to understand like understand emotions in a whole different way without kind of trying to add logic, just kind of understanding the process that it feels in the body and accepting it rather than to um, try to dissect it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and this and this aspect of actually not only being able to experience that emotion, but in a way to be able to enjoy yeah. experiencing it, that emotion as, yeah. a, as a kind of souvenir of, but this is what's left of love. Exactly. It and it's the same with whenever I've been dating a lot of people later and, and I kind of it ends and you feel sad about it I still kind of just I go okay but I'm going to treat this emotion as at least I'm alive I mm -hmm. it's it's a like it's it's an affirmation that I'm actually feeling emotions which in a yeah. sense it's just me being alive uh which mm -hmm. has kind of been my mantra in later years whenever I felt shit <laughs> i yeah. could just kind of go well at least i'm having emotions and i could have been a psychopath and not have emotions at all at least this makes my life richer in some way <laughs> <laughs> i suppose <laughs> finding comfort in the weird things <laughs> but just because because you have to go in a minute um do you have anything like for other teachers supervisors um bringing on the experience you had with me crying in your office um do you have any recommendations? What did you kind of like, what are your, uh, what you've been through and how many people you've had in your office before? Um, <laughs> because you are such a comfortable person. I can imagine a lot of people would come to you uh, because you're very comfortable to talk to in general. Um, so do you have any like advice yeah. in some ways? The main, I guess two things I would say, and again, we always have to be conscious. I mean, those of us who don't have any training as counselors, we always have to be conscious that we're dealing with this as lay people and we mm. need to be really careful about what we recommend to avoid doing more harm than good. But I think the other thing is just, you know, trust, trust your own powers of empathy. Mm. And that the main thing to do is listen, because I think a lot of the healing just comes from the fact that the student is talking about their experience and they see that experience validated in that somebody is taking it seriously. Mm. And often you don't even really need to recommend anything. Often just listening is enough. Mm. But if you do recommend something, for example, when I recommended, maybe you just need to cut off contact. Yeah, and also recommended just, me going on like activities and uh, other kind of just completely different things, yeah. meet up with other yes. people and like get new yes. friends. <laughs> well, not yes. new friends, but involved. like meet new people. That was kind of like one of the new things. People. Get involved in my project. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
but to but you know make those kind of recommendations but just always tell the student you know try this and see if it works for you if this doesn't work for everybody try it and see if it works for you yeah that's really good advice i'm really glad that you could come and like help me out with this <laughs> i'm so glad that you're looking at this now from the perspective of having moved past it but yeah. still being able to be being able to remember it and to even think back on that sadness as you know, this is part of the human condition. This is part of my experience that I can use as an actor. Yeah. And I think that's what what's the most, kind of most important thing I want to come across with this podcast is that this is completely normal. We're all going through this and emotions are fine. Emotions are mm -hmm. very shit at the moment where you <laughs> are experiencing them. And like I did and cried almost every single day, um, wrote too much and cried in your office and uh, most other places as well but it still <laughs> but it did teach me the valuable lesson lesson of this are this is your life this is something you can kind of appreciate in in a way that this is mm -hmm. not something to be afraid of because i was afraid to feel i was afraid and i think that's a lot of what came out of the writing because i was afraid kind of where my mind would go if I just sat for myself and didn't write, if I didn't try to mm -hmm. understand, if I didn't find the logic in my emotions, then where would I disappear? Like what kind of what would happen to my mind? And I think this experience and with a lot of the help that I got from friends, family and yourself included, um, did kind of teach me that it was okay and kind of letting go is fine deleting them from snapchat take that advice people <laughs> out there um it's good advice and yeah it's kind of but it's also what's kind of helped and shaped me later i really think and uh uh would you recommend people going to see their supervisor even if there's not as like a pastoral supervisor as in the uk i don't know how it is there in norway because i've never been to university here um yeah do you think it's uh... a... <laughs> I would say anytime you, you have a very strong feeling that you have a relationship of trust with this person mm. who is going to give you a perspective different from that of your peers, mm. that it's worth giving it a try. I would say, though, just be, be sensitive to that person's reaction because not everybody is comfortable very true. listening in that way or giving that kind of advice. So just you know, approach that person with some care and, mm -hmm. and just find out, you know, are you willing to have this conversation with me? But if they are, again, the, the just having a different perspective from your own and from your peers, I do think helps. And I'm really glad that it helped in your case. Yeah, it really did. <laughs> Well, thank you. Is there anything else you would like to say in this uh, podcast before? You know, I would just like to echo because we talked early on about this notion of, especially for men, sometimes it's really hard to acknowledge and experience your own emotions. Mm. I, I just, I think what you're doing in that area is so important. And the more that we can learn that you know, feeling emotions, expressing emotions is not something unmasculine. It's a way mm -hmm. to preserve your own sanity. Yes. <laughs> a, That's the thing, that sanity. Masculinity <laughs> is being able to have that experience, share that experience, and use that experience to get support from other people mm. rather than to become isolated with those feelings. Yeah, it's more masculine and it's more courageous to actually reach out and to be able to express express emotions, I think. 
mm-hmm. because it shows that I f- it makes you stronger in a way because it means you can tackle all aspects of not just the physical prowess of being a masculine alpha male, but also the mental <laughs> mental prowess of being able to know your emotions, not necessarily handle, but know and kind of. Mm-hmm yeah express to them and there's no weakness i don't understand where that weakness came from because there is no weakness in expressing emotions because oh, there's yeah, there's a there's a long history of that which will which goes way beyond this podcast yeah but the notion of strength lies in being able to build a community by sharing emotions and supporting yeah. each other and yeah. those emotions to me is absolutely vital in today's world i i, I totally agree yeah and it's that's what creates the, the the best bonds as well. That's what creates the strongest bonds between people is be able to share um, a sense of community through emotion because that also creates. It's kind of like the final frontier of social being social. I feel because it's the, it's the last door you would probably open to someone, but it's also the one that kind of stays open the long. But also, kind of being aware of who you are sharing to not everyone can handle the same kind of type of emotions and kind of need to be on the same wavelength i think think sometimes for it to kind of click (laughs) Mm -hmm. um because if it just becomes like a one-way communication then maybe that can be a big problematic in the long run i suppose no that's the key i mean that's the key to establishing your own subjectivity is being able to communicate with and i mean none of us are universal independent subjects who exist completely independent of our relationships with other people. We find out who we are through those interactions with other people. And yeah. you know, the key is finding people who who can receive that. Yeah. <laughs> and and to give it back in a way that makes both of you feel like better people. Exactly. That's really good. Well, thank you very much. I will be going and looking at Freudian definition of melancholy. Uh, (laughs) and uh, I think we're going over the time where you need to go so thank you so much Lisa for doing this and uh, joining this week's Corona bonus Um, this will be coming out next Monday so you can share it out around if you want and uh, it's obviously in English now this one Uh, the rest of the podcast (laughs) is in Norwegian sadly Um, Mm -hmm. but I had to do this one in English because I needed to interview you and for all the listeners out there, you can follow the podcast on Dumpet Podcast, which is D-U-M-P-E-T, podcast with a C, uh, at, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and also email the same name at gmail.com, uh, and also give some stars and reviews on iTunes, uh, and click subscribe, and we'll be continuing with the story, but it's mostly in Norwegian, sorry, because uh, <laughs> it's hard to get Norwegians to talk English at the normal podcasts. Um, so with that, thank you very much, Lisa. All right. Thank you. And I'll see you around. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.